The following program is brought to you by Podcast One Sportsnet. Don't forget to download our new Podcast One app. Welcome to RJ Bell's Dream Preview. Weekly winners from his Wise Guy Roundtable. Broadcasting from the pregame.com studios in Las Vegas. Here is RJ Bell. That's right. And it's RJ Bell with a special Dream Preview, Kentucky Derby Preview. And boy, guys, do we have the guy, the guy that proved it last year, his depth of knowledge, Fred Bauer. Not only an expert at horse racing, but an ESPN Houston, I would say legend, Fred. Is that fair to say? Eh, that's probably a bit much, but uh, we do okay around here in Houston. <laughs> one, of the, one of the voices of Houston, that is the most conservative way we can say it. And here's what we're going to do. We are going to talk about how to handicap horses in general, but just a little bit of that. And at the end of this pod, which is going to be less than an hour with the specifics of the 2018 Derby, we will replay last year's triple crown handicapping podcast, which is evergreen, meaning it's not talking about any individual horses, but rather the generic way to approach triple crown handicapping. That's why this first pod is going to be more focused on 2018 and the specifics of the Derby and the specifics of this field. Sound good, Fred? Sounds good to me. Awesome. Usually I have my Ric Flair drop here that says showtime. So (laughs) it's going to have to be RJ doing it. All right. What's the number one thing this year that jumps out at you about the 2018 Derby? I think what jumps out at me is that there's a, I think there's a lot of horses that can win this race, as many as nine, as a matter of fact. And that's not always the case. And I think part of it is uh, we've, we've had a lot of, of, of horses that have just sort of uh, dominated their specific areas. You've got some horses that were really good as two-year-olds that haven't quite developed as, at three, but might be coming up to a big effort. Uh, but I think more years than most, there's a lot of horses that I think can win the race. And there's going to be one favorite who's going to take a lot of action. And I, I think that uh, uh, I, I think it's in your best interest to try to look around an odd shop a little bit and, and try to beat him and make some money. Full disclosure, I really don't bet the horses very often. And it's a simple reason. It, it's not in my blood, right? Because even if I somehow was negative EV, you know, I'm not afraid, though I, I get enough action, I don't do this. But I could imagine betting something that was negative EV in a recreational sense, as long as I understood that and bet small amounts. Um, I certainly spent, I always joke, I got my undergraduate degree from Ohio state, but my master's, I lost about 70,000 at the dog races over two years. That was my (laughs) postgraduate work. Now that actually happened before I went to college, if you can believe it, but I learned a lot of lessons there. And one of them is it is hard to beat the horses, the dogs, any of the races. Do you agree with that in general? Oh, absolutely. It's not easy. And, and I, I have good years and bad years and good months and bad months. And and, and the reality is um, it, I, I could make a living at it, but it's the hardest thing to do it at. 
and it's a lot more fun to do it recreationally. But but the reality is, uh, the with the takeout that's already there, if you hit a big score, you're getting taxed again, and that's just if you're right. <laughs> so if you're wrong, uh, it's real easy to take a bath. So uh, a lot of people want to focus on the derby. They want to focus on the big races and, and try to make money on those and kind of parachute in, and, and that's great. And if you can hit those and get a big score – well, sit out again until the Preakness in a couple of weeks, because if you're trying to do it day in and day out, uh, the the odds are against you. You're probably going to lose. I try to pick my spots with certain tracks and in certain situations, and at times it works and at times it doesn't. And it just comes down to, uh, you know, even if you're doing everything right in the end, this is it's not unlike blackjack. The house has got an edge on you because the taxes are so high on most of the takeouts that it's very difficult to to win on a regular basis. But uh, when you when you do, you appreciate it and you run with it. And uh, you know, it, it's a fun sport though because you can bet a little to win a lot, which is one of those things that we're all looking to do. And unlike sports betting, which you know you and I talk about a lot on our other podcasts, uh, which is a grind. I mean, this is more of a you know, get up to the plate and try to hit it out of the park kind of kind of sport. So when you talked about our other podcast, so we do a segment every Friday for years now at three thirty Pacific, five thirty Central on Houston ESPN. We usually just go twenty five minutes and one or two topics, which <laughs> almost is like a podcast. Though during football season last year, we had a national show we recorded. And, and then was played on uh, sports book uh, or SB Nation, I guess is the way to say. As I, th- I see SB and I think a sports book. <laughs> oh, so do I. <laughs> SB Nation Radio nationally and very well received. And listen, when Fred says he wins at horse racing, that means he wins because Fred's an honest fellow, probably painfully so sometimes with some of your candor <laughs> on air, but let's talk about that just for a moment last five years. Cause people will debate. And I actually tweeted out a Bloomberg article just today. And we're taping on Thursday, my Twitter at RJ in Vegas about how there was a guy who came up with an algorithm that won almost a billion dollars at horse racing. And he's telling his story for the first time. Fascinating read. But boy, when you talk about that 20% takeout, what does that mean? It means all the money it's bet into a paramutual pool. And then they pull out a certain percentage in the exotics. It's even more, but let's just call it 20%. Now the theoretical hold in sports betting is less than 5%. So whatever makes it difficult to bet on sports and less than 3% of longtime bettors win on sports. It's four times as difficult because of the VIG commission take out whatever you want to call it as horse racing. So when you talk about the tax, are you talking about that 20% Fred? Yeah. Well, are you talking, it, I'm talking yeah. about that, which is, which can be up to 28% on some of the exotics I like to play, which it, now we're getting into just some insane numbers. And, and then also if you hit a certain amount, then you got to go to the IRS window and they'll take it out if it's over $5,000. But if it's less than that, they won't take it out. Then you got to deal with it on your taxes next year and pay it then. And and a lot of people don't even bother with that. So you essentially get taxed on the back end there, too. Yeah, you can get that money back, but it's also a pain in the ass to do it. And, and I mean, that makes that makes the game that much more unappealing for people who are, are legitimate players who like to dive into sports and who like to to dive into some other things that it makes it very difficult to be a consistent winner. And it also it, because it's it's work. 
you know, it really is work to go and deal with your taxes because you, you hit a trifecta that was $658. No, uh, no doubt. And the theory is if you're keeping good books and you have losses that equal that amount, then it all evens out. But like you said, there's bookkeeping costs, tax prep costs. So just another friction point. But all that said, even so, if we took the last five years, so let's say five years ago today and summed all of your horse racing since you're positive. Uh, yes. Last year was my first losing year in four years. And it wasn't by much. I had a pretty good uh, last couple months of the year to get to where I wasn't down very much at all. But it was a losing year. Uh, the year before that was my best year. And, and over the last five years, yes, I'm up. And, uh, you know, up a decent amount, I would say. Not, uh, uh, not, not quite enough to brag about, but certainly enough to cover uh, all of my, my plays and, and also to cover a few bad runs in sports or poker. I mean, it's, it's been a, I, I get five or six really big scores a year that kind of carry everything. And last year, I just never got those. I, I, I wound up with one or two decent ones, but no really big ones. And, and so it wasn't a great year, but it's one of those that when I have a bad year, I tend to grind it out and not lose too much money. Now, did you win enough to cover all the chicken wings? Uh, man, you, you've seen me. You know how I eat chicken wings. <laughs> no, of course not. Of course not. Who? That's too high. That's too high a bar. Let's be honest. <laughs> last, last question. Um, and, and before we get in the specifics of this year, whenever I hear last year was my first losing year, I'm always worried that is there a trend line that's making the game more difficult? And the one thing as a novice, an outsider to the horses that I would say maybe would be a sign of that is less and less recreational players as the takeouts increase, as it's harder and harder to win the person who maybe would go 20, 30 times a year to the track or bet remotely, which is legal. Maybe they bet less or not at all. And thus there's less, let's call it dead money in quotes. And thus it gets more difficult. Do you sense that could be the case? Uh, I think that's a, that's a big part of it. I think it's, it's twofold. I think that's one. And I think two is most, there's so many tracks running five and six horse fields that it's so difficult to make money off of those races now. And so it makes it hard for the good players to get in there and because uh, you, you want big fields because that's going to get you better payoffs. That's going to get you more opportunities to, to get big scores. And so, yeah, I think there's fewer players. And I think there's certainly with these smaller fields, it makes it more difficult. And that's why the Derby is one of those things where you'll take the rubber band off the bankroll because you will have a lot of dead money in there. And I tell you, the worst thing in the world was Gronkowski scratching out of this race a couple of weeks ago because you know how many people were going to bet on him on name alone. And that was all going to be dead money that was going to be in the pools for you to go after. But uh, that that's why there's so few races like this that are appealing uh, because win or lose, if you if you go ahead and dive into this race over a five-year period, if you hit two of them, you're going to be really, really happy because your return is going to be great because there is dead money. There is uneducated money out there, and it's a huge field. So it's everything you want as a horse player. Great segue to 2018. Here's why I'm especially interested in the Derby and I'll be betting your picks. And by the way, guys, uh, Fred is not going to hold anything back about the horses he likes on this podcast, but what he does exclusively for pregame.com is he'll give us exactly what he's betting, exactly what he's betting as in trifecta slash here, Quinella there and really zero in. So if you're looking, Hey, I'm going to play a horse to show. 
that's a nice long shot. Fred's going to give you one or two that he likes and other things. But when it comes to how is Fred betting, you can follow that exactly. And that's going to be up at pregame.com uh, with the picks up come. When's the, when are you going to actually have your picks up, Fred? Uh, They're actually up right now, and I, I have four plays on there. There's four very different plays for everybody. And what I also did was give you different increments. So if you don't want to bet as much as I do or if you want to bet a lot more, I give you the increments on it, too. So there's four plays on there. I also will have, uh, and as a matter of fact, it'll be on there by the time you listen to this. I'll have a free trifecta play on the site. I'll also have a breakdown of every single horse, and then some of the trends we're going to talk about. I've got a little story on that. All of those will be for free on the site in addition to the picks, which I feel pretty good about. And we're going to give a coupon. Might as well do it now. So just podcast only. You guys are getting this exclusively. The coupon code is DERBY. 10. That's all caps, D-E-R-B-Y, the number one, the number zero, Derby 10. And all those four plays, the premium ones from Fred, one package. Don't have to buy four separate things. Put it in your shopping cart. Use Derby 10 in the coupon code area of the shopping cart. Get 10 bucks off. Which What's the price on your package? Uh, I don't know, actually. <laughs> I think I, I think it's in the 29 range. Yeah, I think that's so. So you're getting a third off, guys, if you're interested. But a ton of free stuff here. And he mentioned in the in the forums even more free stuff. But I'll be playing this race and pretty much emulating or mimicking Fred. And here's why. One, I love it when the public gets involved. I'm a contrarian better. And I love it when there's, we'll call it, quote, unquote, dead money. Number two, this trend of how many favorites have won is really shocking. So give us that trend, Fred, and, and I'll explain why. To me, it makes 2018 even a better Kentucky Derby opportunity. All right, well, let's let's go back to the days where I was first really becoming a triple crown better, 1980 to 2000. Do you know how many favorites won during that stretch? Zero. I do. Yeah. Yes. And uh, <laughs> But the last five years, there have been five consecutive favorites have won. The previous high goes back to 72, and one of those was Secretariat in 73. There were four in a row from 72 to 75. So things have clearly changed here, and I think there's a reason for it. It's because they've gone to this point system, which uh, basically if you, certain races give you a certain point total. The top 20 get in the race. I, in the old days, it was based on graded stakes earnings, so a lot of cheap sprinters uh, that their owners just wanted to get a derby box for the day would have enough earnings to get in the race, and they'd go out there and they'd run their heart out for five furlongs and then drop dead. Well, we don't have many of those anymore, so you're getting more honest results, and most of the horses that are winning are horses that are going to be near the front, so the pace doesn't collapse as much, and I think that's why we've seen it. However, this year I think it's going to be a little bit different. But hold on a second, because you took, a, a, as they say in wrestling, a swerve there, because I thought when you say, okay, the system to make eligible horses for the Derby used to be less accurate, used to be flawed. Right. And thus the theory is you have lesser horses in the Derby. So if there's lesser horses in the Derby, that means less horses have a viable chance to win, which means the chances of the favorite winning goes up. Well, here's, here's why here's, Here's my point on that, okay? In theory, yes, except those horses don't have a chance to win, but they have a chance to impact the race. Horses are pack animals, and that's why you see the ones that are really fast that are near the front, 
if they get a lot of pressure early, many of, many of them will crumble. And we see a lot of horses, including one this year who's never faced that kind of pressure, that they get up there, and, and it doesn't matter if that horse can only last six furlongs. He's going to take enough steam out of that favorite who was up near the lead for the race to collapse and something ridiculous to happen. And, uh, and usually it's a big-time closer who happens to pick up the pieces. So having horses like that in there that don't belong do impact the race. Yes, they have no chance to win, but if they take the steam out of a front runner, and usually derby favorites are going to be horses that are near the lead, and make them run faster than they they want to run in the early stages of the race, well, they're not going to last a mile and a quarter. This this race is way too long for a horse to do that and go under pressure for six, seven furlongs and then hang around until the end. And that's why I think you saw so many races where with where they just went way too fast early, and the horses that you know, thought they had the best horse, were staying near the lead, and it took too much steam out of them, and some ridiculous long shot came flying from the back of the pack and won the race at a big price. So is this a general horse racing handicap and concept? The less early speed there is, the more consistent the race is going to run. If there is more early speed, that's going to ra- make more random the results. Well, certainly at a mile and a quarter. Uh, if you've got a situation where you've got four or five horses that have to be on the front end and are going to go as fast as they can in the early stage of the race, that will impact the race. Because inevitably, one horse who doesn't really want to go that fast will get caught up in it. That takes him out of it. It tends to favor horses who are going to sit a little farther back. The last five years, it's been horses near the lead for the most part because, frankly, uh, you don't have that ridiculous suicidal pace that you've had in the past. And I think that's in last year even was a perfect example of that with Always Dreaming, who got a perfect trip up there and was able to go on and win. And I, I think that uh, the the randomness that was created by having lesser horses in there that were wild cards, basically. Now you've got horses that are pretty much going to run the way that they've been running for the past couple of months. So it's more predictable. And I think it's also, uh, and not just for handicappers, for for jockeys to say, okay, I know this horse is going to go out here and do this, so I'm just going to sit back and let him drop dead. And I think it's made the races a little bit more predictable, at least when it comes to winners. Okay, so you mentioned, though, the idea that this year there's a horse or horses that runs in a way that will maybe harken back to those wild card days. Let's get to that. Well, okay, let's 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 start with this because there's a couple of horses that are very fast in here, including uh, Promises Fulfilled, who's the three horse who uh, uh, won a nice race at Gulfstream two back and then just collapsed in the last one. And I don't think he has much of a chance here, but he's going to be going pretty quickly early. And the favorite here is a horse called Justify. Justify's only had three starts. And all three of them this year, he's been very impressive. His buyer speed figures, which is a figure that the daily racing form uses, he's had all three of them over a hundred. There's only four, com- or excuse me, five combined one hundreds in the rest of the field. So he's extremely fast. But here's the problem with him: he's going to face pace pressure for the first time in his life. He's been be- he's been beating five horses in California, and there's one really big trend, and I'm sure everybody's heard this, but. He did not race as a two-year-old, and no horse has won the Derby without racing as a two-year-old since 1882. That's 1882. You know who was president then? 1882. Uh, I'm going to say Grant Chester A. Arthur. The only, oh, the only okay. reason I, I know that close. the only reason I know that is because I was uh, uh, was a diehard with a vengeance. But uh, uh, yeah, so <laughs> that's that's kind of a trick. There have been two horses that have been close. Bodie Meister in 2012 ran second. Battle of Midway ran third last year, but he was really no threat to the winners. So we're getting a horse that's going to be bet down. He's 
going to face pace pressure for the first time in his life. He's trying to do something that hasn't been done since 1882. And, uh, and basically, he's got to do it against 19 of uh, really strong competitors for a change. So are you going to take three to one on that? And I, in general, I'm always looking at horses that aren't the favorite because favorites win about 33% of the time in thoroughbred racing. I'm more interested in the other 67%. So, yes, he might win. He might be a superstar. He might run off and, and, and take this thing by 10 links. But I've got enough history on my side and enough other things on my side that I'm not going to take three to one on this horse. And, yeah, he's trained by Bob Baffert, who has four derby winners, including the triple crown winner, American Pharaoh. And I, I like what I see out of him. But I think this is an awful lot to ask, and I can't take three to one on him when there's better prices on horses that make a lot of sense in here. And I think in general, favorites get bet by recreational batters. And since the Derby and the Triple Crown races have more recreational batters, I think whatever kind of, oh, let's follow the money and put my 10 bucks on the favorite phenomenon is much more pronounced in the derby. So I, I think the favorite usually has even less value, though obviously they've been winning. Now, here's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing that promises fulfilled and justified. Is it plural on promises or? Yeah, promises. Let me look yeah. here. Promises fulfilled. I have trouble fulfilling one promise. So I, I can't even comprehend that. At least my wife would say so. Is promises fulfilled and justify a uh, lot of speed, more speed than usual. Now, it sounds like there's an if then. If justify is able to stay out there and run and, and lead wire to wire, then, hey, he won the favorite one. But if he isn't able to, it's not just the advantage of playing the value horses that aren't favored. But it sounds like there's an additional advantage, which is the way Justify would lose would be by getting out there with a bunch of early speed, which will create that that more random, that more wild card effect if he does end up losing, which means potentially a late charger is going to have a chance like they used to, let's say, 15 years ago this year. Does that sound right? Yeah, yeah. And it's not just those two. I mean, Flame Away has a lot of speed. He's going to be near the lead. Uh, I, I think there's a couple of other horses that you're going to see out out trying to press the pace a little bit. Bravazo, I don't think he lasts very long, but he's also got some speed. Mendelssohn, who's a horse that raced over in Dubai, uh, he won by 18 links over there. He was near the lead the whole way, so I kind of think he's going to be out there. And I wouldn't be shocked if Magnum Moon uh, is also part of that first group. And all it really takes is for one other horse to decide, uh-oh, I better go here. And then several others are going to try to do the same thing. So I, I think there's several horses that could create this. And, and having said that, it is the Derby. If four of them don't break and Justify walks out of the gate there by himself and finds himself on the lead, then uh, it's going to be a pretty uninteresting race. But I, I, but I think with all these possibilities, uh, I could easily see that happening where we have a pretty significant speed duel. Now, he may be good enough to overcome it, but I'm not. And he's going to get bet more than three to one. People recognize Bob Baffert. They recognize Mike Smith. So, oh, that's the guy who won the Triple Crown. And that's where your casual fan's going to hammer him. And as much as I think he's a very good horse, I, I, I think there's so much value elsewhere. I have to go that way. So is it a fair statement to say there's more sp early speed in this race this year than in, let's say, the last five years? And thus, the chances of the race running more like a race from 15 years ago, and thus the favor struggling, there's a better chance this year. Is yeah, I would say, say? On, on paper, that is definitely the case. Definitely. Okay. Now, the two-year-old, now let, let's really make a point with this. 
is since 1882. Do you know who was president in 1882? Uh, oh, yeah, wait. Yeah. Wait, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> die, die hard with Avengers. There's, Go watch the movie. The guy in the uh, dump truck will tell you. There's been 61 horses that did not race during their two-year-old year and did race in the Derby as a three-year-old, and they're 0-61. I mean, you tell me there's an 0-61, I'm looking to fade it. Right. So in my my question is, what is it about the two-year-old year not having the horse race and then not winning the Derby that we can say, yes, the horses that that, applied to the, that applies to this year, they're in the same situation. Because whenever I have a trend, I want to understand the logic and then I want to see if the logic applies this next time. All right. Well, historically, in order to win the Kentucky Derby, uh, we're talking about a race that these are essentially teenagers, right? We're asking them to run farther than they've ever run before, probably a little earlier than they want to run. So it comes down to you know the horses that develop stamina, that uh, have enough experience to be able to handle the 20-horse field. And usually, if you haven't raced as a two-year-old, you're getting a late start. Most of these horses have been battle-tested at two. And by the time they get to three, you're just kind of fine-tuning them and getting them ready for this race. Well, if you don't race at two, you're kind of behind. And now you're rushing the horse. You're going to have to try to force. Uh, one, and, and you want them to be able to have at least a couple of preps that are a mile and a 16th, a mile and an eighth to set them up for this. Well, if you're starting late as a three-year-old, you might get one of those in, maybe two, or in the case of Magnum Moon, you're forcing four races into the horse in a short time, and that tends to affect them as well. So it's basically having a bottom, to, for lack of a better word, having a base for the horse and having them tested at an early age so that when they get to three, you're not trying to catch up with everybody else. Now, some horses are good enough to overcome that, but for the most part, you know, we're talking about a lot of really good horses that have tried this and it just usually, well, it's over 61. So that tells you how often it's worked. Wow. I love the logic. So what I'm hearing is this, the length of the Derby and the complexity of the trip because of all the horses involved requires maturity, requires experience. And if a horse is three and it missed its whole second year, obviously it's impossible to have superior or even average experience. I think Embiid in the NBA is a good example, right? Uh, yeah. Started playing. Let's say that he's in some situation that requires experience. You might say, well, considering his age, he maybe could do it. But then you're like, well, wait a minute. He didn't start playing basketball until late in his life. Thus, could you make the case he's going to be less mature on the court in some ways? Makes a ton of sense. Well, in, in, in order to overcome something like this, you have to be a generational horse. And I've seen three starts out of this guy, so I, I don't know that he's a generational horse. He's going to have to prove that he is. And I, I'm okay with betting against that because if he winds up being that, great. We'll have fun with him in the Preakness. But uh, I, I just think asking a horse to do that is very and, and as good a trainer as Bob Baffert is. He's sent horses out like this before, and, and they haven't won either. So... Uh, I, again, I just think it's one of those things that it makes a ton of sense when you think about it, that if you want a horse that's ready to run in May this early in a, in a three-year-old campaign, he's got to be built up enough to where he can go a mile and a quarter. I want to fade the favorite anyway. <laughs> now I, it seems like we have two additional reasons to look to fade justify. And when I say fade, I mean look for value on other horses. And one being there's a lot of speed this year, which could be a problem because justify has speed. And number two, and, and thus 
uh, as you said, like a, a an early duel, which is uh, challenging and, and a strain. Number two uh, needs experience. He doesn't because he missed his two. Now, why did Justify miss his two-year-old year? Uh, well, they they got him. The, they, it was owned by somebody else. They got him fairly late, and he just wasn't ready to run yet. And uh, and it's also hard to find but, spots but, for a horse like that. So that's the other part of it. If you're not ready to go at two, you're not mature enough. Uh, it's a lot to ask you to be mature enough to win this kind of race uh, this early in your three-year-old campaign. And and you're talking physically now, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because the other maturity was more experience, right? So we're, we're talking about if you're not racing at two for some reason uh, that doesn't involve your physical ability to, well, you're missing the experience. In this case, if the, if the physical immaturity was one of those reasons, now you've got two reasons to be skeptical now because the physical maturity, though obviously he's matured enough to win some races, probably not as much as he would have if he had been mature enough during his two-year-old year. And number two, back to the experience idea. So, wow, it seems like there's, I wonder if there's a no. Now, do you find places, Fred, where you can just bet no on justify, like a yes, no? Uh, I, I am sure that there is something like that online. I haven't found it yet, but if I do, I, I probably would. But I think the, the, the value would be finding who it is you think can beat him. And the other thing I would just kind of point out, he's only had the one stakes race. It was a Santa Anita Derby, which he won by three links, but he also drifted out badly in the stretch. Apparently, he was put off by people in the infield. Well, there's going to be 150,000 people in this infield. So if he was put off by that, uh, there's a good chance he just mentally freaks out, too. So there's a lot of reasons to look at this and say, yeah, okay. And, and like I said, he may overcome all that, but do we really, really want to take a favorite that we have to overcome all that with? I don't. Yeah, I don't now, either. I love, <laughs> I love the way you approach the trends. We talked about the own 61. Here's another one. Since 2011, every Derby winner has won his final prep race. So which of the contenders did not win their final prep race this year? Well, I, I actually like two horses that finished second, and, and one of them is a horse that ran behind uh, uh, Justify, Bolt Dioro. He ran second in the Santa Anita Derby. It was a small field. Uh, he's more of a horse that sort of sits off the pace, not too far off. He'll be, I think, in the second flight. And he wasn't totally cranked up for the Santa Anita Derby. He needed that race. Uh, they were just trying to tune him up and get him ready for the Kentucky Derby. He ran a good second that day. Wasn't really a threat, but didn't really try to be either. They kind of just, hey, we need to get this race in him and have him ready for Derby Day. So even though he didn't win, uh, I, I like his running style better. He's he's proven as a two-year-old. He's proven as a three-year-old. And uh, I absolutely love him to have a big chance, and he didn't win his prep. So that's that's the one that uh, I would say has the best chance of, of horses that did not win their prep race. And you said one more you actually uh, like. Yeah, that, yeah. there's there's another one uh, that that also uh, there's a horse that ran second in the Wood Memorial and not the sexiest prep race. It's usually not you know there's not great horses in it, but uh, this horse also pretty well tested as a two year old, very well bred. His name's Enticed. He's the twelve horse. He's thirty to one. Uh, he did win a stakes race at Churchill Downs as a two-year-old, which is a, a pretty good thing to have on your resume because he's won over this track before. I think he's going to get ignored, and I think he's got a real good chance to get a piece of this, if not win it. And uh, he didn't win his prep either, but uh, he's another one that's going to be getting a few dollars of mine. Now, I'm staying away from Entice. I just made a decision <laughs> in the moment. But this Bolt D, I could, I could see the situation where 
if, because what's the theory of winning your prep is you're in good form, right? The right. theory is you're in good form, the most recent race. But if you're racing a, a really good horse justified that was in a good spot there that got the lead and didn't have the troubles that, that, and the required maturity that we think is necessary in the Derby, now all of a sudden you could be the second best horse in the world, but justify on a clean trip is the best, let's say, and thus it makes sense you're going to get second. So to me, being second to justify means you can kind of rationalize maybe the trend isn't applicable to the, the bolt D right. And I'll, I'll give you another, another number on him. We talked about buyer speed figures earlier and how justifies had over a hundred and all three of his, well, bolt Dioro is the only other horse in the field to hit triple digits in three races. He had a one Oh three running behind justify and, and a one Oh two and a one Oh one in his past. So he's, uh, he's been able to do that as well. So if you think justify is vulnerable, he's a very, very logical horse and we're going to get a square price on him. He's listed at eight to one. I think he's going to be somewhere in between eight and 12 to one, but, uh, I, he makes a ton of sense to me. He's my top pick in the race and, and I'll be using him in just about everything. This is pregame.com's dream preview. I'm RJ Bell with our horse racing expert, Fred Bauer. You can follow Fred on Twitter at Fred Bauer, F-A-O-U-R. Now, you've got another filtering concept. Over the last 26 years, there's only been four derby winners in their final prep race that failed to reach a certain speed or time. Explain. Yeah, uh, basically, uh, what you're looking for is horses that finish strong in in the Derby because a mile and a quarter. If, if you run well at a mile and an eighth and finish up well, the supposition is you'll run well at a mile and a quarter. But uh, there have only been four Kentucky Derby winners whose final prep race went slower at a, at a mile and an eighth at one minute and fifty seconds is kind of the cutoff. One fifty, one fifty is pretty slow for a mile and an eighth. Now, keep in mind, sometimes there's track conditions or it's really muddy and the track is slow. But in general, that's not a bad number to use uh, if you're going to go back 26 years. So that takes away two horses that uh, their final prep, Good Magic, who was uh, very good as a two-year-old, uh, won the Bluegrass, but he did it in a very slow time. And Noble Indy uh, won the Louisiana Derby. He also did it in a, in a pretty slow time. And Good Magic's a horse I liked here and was really uh, looking at maybe him or uh, Bolt Dioro and found, finally wound up going with Bolt Dioro. But uh, mainly because of this, I, I think the that this year you could make an excuse for his first race where he didn't run well, but but his big race that he won, he kind of came home slow. So uh, I, I think that's a little bit of a factor as well. So I'm, I'm not going to throw him out of my bets, but I'm not using him as my top pick either. The horse Mendelssohn applies to one of my favorite theories, and I don't know if I've shared this one too much on the Dream Preview. And it actually, I just watched this last weekend, the uncut version, so the extended version of Almost Famous. So not uncut as in more sex or whatever, but just the director's longer cut. One of my favorite movies. I mean, literally top 10 of all time for me. And Jimmy Fallon plays a manager who's, you know, kind of grizzled. He's been around the block. And in the uncut version, it wasn't in the regular movie. He has uh, a lighter in his hand, his right hand. And he has his left hand closed in a fist. He says, do you want to take the lighter or what's in this fist? He says, everybody takes the f what's in the fist. And he opens up his hand and it's empty. And the time I think that applies is in the NBA draft is a lot of these players that had three years in division one. We've seen them a bunch. 
Oh, look at that flaw. Remember last Christmas he did this. But then you got a guy on YouTube that's playing against chairs, and all of a sudden it's hard to be negative because you get to dream on him. Yeah, There's room to dream. And it strikes me, Mendelssohn being a horse not from America, a little bit of mystery around him, fascinating to me. I think it's going to draw people in. What do we know about him? Well, I'll, I'll tell you the positives first is he did come over and win the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Turf last year. And so he obviously was a pretty good horse. He was as a two year old. He had some really weird. He was a turf horse in Europe, had some really bad efforts and then a couple of really good ones. Then came over here, won the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Turf, which is a very big race. The biggest two year old race on the turf uh, in the States for, for Colts and, and Geldings went back over to uh, Europe, uh, won a race on basically fake dirt in England, which they don't do much of. So he didn't beat much. Then he goes over to Dubai and he wins the UAE Derby, which is their big prep race by 18 lengths and did it at a mile and three sixteenth, which is farther than any of these other horses have run and looked dazzling doing it. And uh, apparently, well, one of the things about this is it's very hard to ship over to Dubai and then back to the States. We've seen it with a lot of horses that have gone over there for the Dubai World Cup and then came back to the U.S. and ran like garbage in their next stop, stop our next start. So it's been it's very, very it's a very tough trip. You're asking a lot out of a horse. He's already been a distance farther than uh, you probably should be going to prep for the Derby. But he was so impressive that I think people are going to look at that and say, oh, I really like this horse. Well, 13 other horses have come over from Dubai, including some really, really good horses. 0 for 13, the number, and most of them have had zero impact on the race. So I, I'm intrigued by him because he looks so impressive with that victory, and he has shipped before and done well. But you know, again, I think you're asking an awful lot out of this horse to uh, ship over there, back over here, and then try to beat a field that's much, much better than what he faced over in Dubai. So when you say horses are 0-13 that's tried to follow this route, is the route racing in Dubai in this prep and then straight to the Derby? Right. Is that the route yeah. or some other route? Yeah, no, that's okay. it. That's it. And, and it, it, was, uh, it wasn't that long ago either. So you're talking about a fairly short turnaround for – uh, an extremely difficult trip. And yeah, I know they have these luxurious planes for these horses, but it, it takes a lot out of them to, to do that much travel. And especially, again, we're talking about a teenager. And uh, he's unpredictable to begin with, because trust me, I have a teenager. I know exactly how they act. And now you take that factor and then asking them to do something that's beyond uh, what you would normally ask them to do. Well, you're probably asking too much out of them. Well, I'll tell you this is when I used to visit Houston a good bit. One of my good buddies lived there. When I would drive in from League City to downtown, that fatigued me. So Dubai, come on. <laughs> well, I, I, get fatigued. Right. I get fatigued flying to Vegas, RJ. So, <laughs> uh, You know, last year's Kentucky Derby pod was awesome, but you really stepped on it with one thing. And again, that happens, and we're honest about it, is Todd Pletcher, a.k.a. Fred Fowler's nemesis, Tell us about the trend entering last year and how it got bucked last year. Well, I think it got bucked because his horse was uh, uh, one of the things and one of my criticisms of Pletcher. And if you look at his his history, uh, I think this gets borne out. He tries very hard to win the prep races. He asks a lot of his horses to go and win the prep races and win them impressively. And he does a great job of that. He's fantastic at it. This year, he won four of them and he's got four serious contenders. But I also think those horses peak before they get to the Derby because he's pushing them so hard to win the Louisiana Derby, to win the Florida Derby, to win the Wood Memorial. 
and the Arkansas Derby in the case of his, his four horses this time. And sometimes the horses that finish behind them are just getting ready for the Derby. And if you look at Pletcher's two Derby winners out of his 48 starters now, this will be 52, the first one was Super Saver, who ran second in the uh, Arkansas Derby, was the last horse to actually run second and then uh, run do something other than win his prep and then win the Derby. And if you go back and watch that race, his jockey, Calvin Burrell, did not try to win the Arkansas Derby. He, he basically shut that horse down and said, hey, I'm saving, I'm saving my horse for the Derby in three weeks. And he only got beat a neck. Always Dreaming has done nothing since he won the Derby. He peaked Derby Day. Uh, the, the track got very weird. And this is one of the things to, to watch for. Uh, the inside of the track was playing unlike it usually ever does for the Derby. And he basically got a perfect trip. And he's done nothing since. So uh, he did peak that day. And, and Pletcher got me that time. But, you know, I've still got 46 other times where I've gotten him. So uh, this year I, I don't – I'm not ruling out his horses. But uh, I, I think the, there's two of them I do like. But uh, in general, I, I just until you know, until he kind of changes the way he does preps and quits trying to win every single one of them and actually prepares his horses to win this race, I'm going to keep betting against him. Now, back to the idea of the trend making sense. Here's the sense I make of being skeptical of uh, Pletcher and his horses is when I hear, well, he tried to win his prep race, but you need to win your prep race. It's necessary to, for you to feel good about the horse. I'm thinking, well, well that seems and contradictory. To, and to get points, but too. Ho- hold on. And to get points. You oh, got, yeah. yeah. So, but, but what I'm hearing is that by, you know, juicing them, and I'm not saying with drugs or whatever, but by saying, you know, we're going to make a decision, even if it's not best long term to do well in this race. It seems like it's about an agenda of trying to get some horses into the Derby that wouldn't get into the Derby if it weren't for that juice or if it weren't for that uh, extra effort. And thus he's trading the chance for his horses to win in the Derby, or at least diminishing those chances to have more horses in the Derby. Is that a fair way to characterize it? Oh, absolutely. And when you have a big operation like that, that's what you want is the most horses in there. And I, and, and obviously you have to win to get the points. Now, in the case of Magna Moon, who won the uh, Arkansas Derby, he didn't need to win that race to get in. He had enough points. He wound up with the most points. But yeah, so you wind up with four horses and you say, oh, I've got four horses in the Derby. But every single one of those horses were pushed very hard to get there. And that doesn't mean they're not going to win. But I also think that we may have seen the best of them. And is that best good enough to win on Saturday? And I don't know. I, I, I look at Audible, who's uh, uh, one of his horses. I like him probably the most out of his four. But even he, I'm a little, him I'm a little bit skeptical about because uh, I, that's a big effort. And uh, he won down at Gulfstream, which is kind of a quirky track. And a lot of times that doesn't translate to Churchill. And and I, I think you know, the, the, the point of trying to win the races, win prep races, it looks good. It looks great on your record. But to win the Derby, you want your horse to be at his peak performance on Derby Day. And I don't know that running your best effort three weeks, four weeks before is necessarily the way to do it. And I think that's, uh, and I think that's been a, a factor with him. And at some point, you know, maybe he'll change the way he does things. And maybe it depends on the horses, too. Maybe he'll find a horse where, you know, who can handle that. Maybe that's what it was last year with Always Dreaming. But it, he really never did anything after that. So uh, I, I just think it's one of those factors. It's it's not the guys are a great trainer, but I, I just say he overworks horses to get them to get those prep wins. And sometimes they don't have enough left when they get to the Derby. And here's the analogy, as I was thinking about it, that makes sense is the idea 
would be or the analog, the Olympics sprints, right? So Usain Bolt, he's running in the quarters, the semis, and it never looks like you know he's jogging at the finish line. So he's good enough not to push it in the prior couple races and thus two things. One, you know, he belongs in the finals and two, he's rested or he's not drained for the finals. Now, on the other hand, some guys that are borderline going to make the finals, they're going all out in the finals, which means one, they're going to make it maybe even though they don't belong in that finals race. And if they do make it, they're drained and thus they don't belong by probably a smidge and they're drained. And if, if I were a hardcore horse handicapper, I'd be looking at Pletcher's horses and putting them in two categories. Did this horse need, was he pushed and did he need to push? Cause like you said, if a horse gets second really wasn't pushed, it doesn't apply. That concept of what Pletcher typically does doesn't apply, but it sounds like in these four horses this year, that all that concept applied that he pressed them or they might not have made the derby. Yeah, well, and I think in, in at least one case he pressed them unnecessarily because he would have got in. And 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 going back to what we were talking about justify, he had to win the Santa Anita Derby basically to get in. He probably could have got in finishing second. He might have had enough points, but he hadn't raced in any point races, so he had to win, right? And Bolt Dioro, who we were talking about, he didn't need it. He just he needed a prep race. He needed to get ready for this race. And I think it took a lot less out of him. And I think you see that. I think a lot of times when you're pushing this hard to make sure you're in then you kind of lose sight of the fact that, hey, I need to have some horse left for the Derby where they're going to be asked to do something that they've never done before and might not do again. Well, that's interesting. The favorite in the race, if he would have not won his last race very well and, and not guaranteed very well, might not have made the Derby. Because yeah, he had zero points going into that. He got 100 points for the win, and that got him in. But uh, and, and this year, it was a... Uh, uh, the point totals were a lot higher, and it would have been it would have been touch and go if he'd have finished second. So, I mean, it was a must win for him. All right, moving to the end here, you've got two horses, and we'll go through one at a time that you think meet a lot of criteria of offering value. And I love long shots. Remember Tin Cup? I love that movie. <laughs> Tin Cup is after like the second or third round, he's getting interviewed, and they go, "Wasn't that a low percentage play?" A long shot play. He goes, I am low percentage. I am a long shot. Give give us some valuable value long shot. All right. If you remember last year, we liked looking at Lee quite a bit. And he I wound up backing off him because he drew the rail, which is terrible. He ran second at a huge price. Well, this is kind of this year's version. He's a horse called Combatant. He's in the 20 post. He's trained by Steve Asmussen. And he's been what we call a purse nibbler his entire career. Second, third, second, third. His only win was at Churchill, so we know he can run over the track. He's he's going to be closing late. He's not fast enough to get up and win. I, I see almost zero chance of that. But he's 50 to 1. I don't need him to win. If he runs third and I've got a nice show bet on him, or if he runs second and blows up my exactas or trifectas, uh, and I think he's that kind of horse. He's your classic grinder plotter. And while those horses don't win the derby, Almost every year, one of them sneaks up and gets into the trifecta at a big price. And and so I like him. He's 50 to 1. I've seen some sites where he's as high as 80 to 1. And uh, he's the 20 horse. And I, I just I like him a lot to be one of those who's plodding along at the end and picks up a nice check. And you look up and your $20 show bet turns into a, uh, several hundred dollars because he's a ridiculous price. The other horse that's kind of interesting in the wise guys. Uh, are, Fred, hold, yeah, sorry. hold on one second because I want to ask a question. 
because what I used to do a lot is key horses and I, and I would do, and again, this is the dog track days. So I might go all at the front and then put combatant in the key to two and then maybe pick five or six horses that I think can get third and then flip it again. Or again, maybe it's key more at the front and go all at the end. Uh, with 20 horses, obviously it's more expensive. What, what do you think about the idea of keying uh, combatant at two and three, and then having a mix uh, at one uh, and, and, and the alternative between two and three. So it'd be, let's just say we were going to go all, all, which we wouldn't, but it might be all, all combatant in second and all in third, and then all first, all second combatant in third, assuming we're not going to go all, but, but with a universe of horses, do you like that? Uh, that's what, what we call the back wheel, which uh, is, is something that I have been doing for years. And actually, you just gave away the trifecta that I will give out for free on a pregame. <laughs> and uh, uh, where, yeah, I basically, I have two trifectas. One of them where I have Bolt Dioro keyed first and second. And I have one where I have Combatant keyed second and third. And theoretically, I could hit them both. Uh, but I really only need to hit one to get paid off. But yeah, I have I have a trifecta where uh, I have several horses on top and him in second and uh, a couple more added to the bottom. And, and then I have him also in third. I think he's that kind of horse. And, and if he clunks up there and does that, it really doesn't matter. Even if Justified wins the race, if he runs second at 50 to one, you're going to be very happy with your trifecta payoff. So what you're saying is RJ has great inst- gambling instincts. Doesn't he? Doesn't even need to know. <laughs> you didn't even fee, uh, you, you know, didn't even sport. need to read my book to know that the the old back wheel play is a wonderful play. So there you go. <laughs> so you you have a horse racing book. Yeah, I have a, a book called Acing Racing. It's available on Amazon. It's been out since 2011, and I have an audio book that uh, uh, updated it in 2016 called Acing Racing 2016, which you can pick up if you go to GalMediaPublishing.com. So those have been out for Boy, a while. Did you hear? Did you hear guys how smoothly he transitioned into that, that plug? I mean, <laughs> usually you kind of set someone up for a plug and they kind of go, well, okay. He just went into it. Like I've never seen someone moving to a plug like that. <laughs> Give us your second long shot. Uh, Hofberg, who's 20 to one, uh, interesting horse. The, the thing against him, he did race it too, but he only raced once. And then he didn't race again until March where he won a maiden race. And then he finished second in the Florida Derby. So he's only had three starts, but he's trained by Bill Mott, who is basically a legend in the business, uh, trained the great cigar. He doesn't really force horses into anything. And so for him to uh, put him in the Derby off, its, off of a second in the Florida Derby, uh, he, he obviously thinks he has a chance to do something here. He's going to be 20 to 1. I'm starting to think he might get bet down more than that because a lot of people are touting him. Again, I don't think he has enough seasoning to win the thing, but he's another one that could show up at a big price. Okay, guys, let's recap where to get the extra info now. First off, right after this, literally seconds after we sign off here, we'll be coming back in with last year's on the same sound file. Just sit back. Don't have to do nothing. Don't do nothing. Wait, that's a double negative. That means you have to do something. Don't do anything. Just wait. And you'll get that evergreen pod, which will help you for the Derby, but also for the Preakness and the Belmont. Number two, Fred Fowler on Twitter. Fred, F-O, or wait, F-A-O-U-R, Fred Fowler on Twitter. Good uh, good follow in general, especially if you like Houston sports, but I think overall. Also, up at pregame.com, we're going to have some free tries, and he's going to show you the horses in those slash bets. I'll be betting that because I like the concept that's going to be up in the forms, pregame.com. And lastly, if you want to bet exactly like Fred and I will be is check out 
in the buy picks area and just put it in your shopping cart. Get always Derby stuff in one package. And oh, by the way, special exclusive coupon. And that is Derby 10, Derby 10, all one word, cast for Derby, the one and the zero, 10 bucks off, makes it extra cheap. Or let's call it, um, uh, if you're frugal, it makes it you know more economical to do it that way. Fred, we're going to be back for the Preakness in a couple of weeks. I got to tell you, the combination of the expertise and the radio broadcasting skills, unmatched, I think, in horse racing. It's a pleasure. We appreciate it. Thank you, my friend. Always fun to do it. And, and also a lot more free content that'll be up on pregame, including I have a look at every horse in the field and, and detailed breakdowns of all of them uh, that'll all be available. And some of these trends we talked about, I also have a story on that. All that'll be on the forums for free. And the Evergreen Pod is next. You're listening to RJ Bell's Dream Preview. Now back to R.J. Bell's Dream Preview. Hey guys, R.J. here. Special podcast. We've got Triple Crown Horse Racing Strategies. I'm R.J. Bell here at the pregame.com offices. Special guest, horse racing expert Fred Fowler. ESPN Houston, Drive Time host, co-host with A.J. Hoffman, his partner. Fred is a lifer when it comes to horses. And let me tell you something. He lost for years and years and years and years and years. But finally, through the pain of all that losing, he's come out the other side now in his early 50s and winning and winning pretty significantly last year, especially but winning for multiple years. And we're going to get to leverage his expertise and the results, the knowledge of all that pain. And remember, this is a triple crown theory. We're not talking anything specific, 2017, 18, none of that. We're talking about how to bet the triple crown. Fred, let's get started. As we said, horse racing a long time, finally figured it out, but let's do the caveat is horse racing is tough. Most people lose. And if you think, oh, there's easy money, there's no easy money. So for us, here's the theory. Follow Fred's approach. You have a better chance to win. But don't be mistaken. And Fred, you can speak to this. It's not easy to win. No, it's not. And it's also, it's one of the hardest things to make money at consistently. And basically the rules are set up to where you're not supposed to win. And it's mainly because of the takeouts and the taxes. They're making it really difficult on you. But people will bet on the Triple Crown. And the reason that I like to really focus on these races is because there's more money in the pools. You have a chance for bigger scores. And that makes up a little bit for the fact that you're already getting taxed of the years on it. And and most people are interested at this time of year. They'll be interested in the in all of the Triple Crown races so there'll be more money bet on them and more opportunities to win money. And so if it's if you're one of those guys who likes to play, you know, Pimlico in the middle of May, that's great, but the Triple Crown is a different kind of animal. It's a way where you can get into some big pools where you can make some money and look look good with your friends. And this is the, the races that people care about, and because of that, you've got a lot of dumb money in there. And if there's dumb money in there, 
then that's just more money for you if you're right. Anytime there's a pool, anytime where other people's bets are affecting things, then the first question is, how much of the money is positive EV, expected value? How much is smart? How much is dumb? To use kind of some broad <laughs> terms. And, you know, remember old moneymaker in a poker tournament had the dead money the next year T-shirt. But poker tournaments are a great analogy, Fred. And you, I know you play a good bit of poker. Is if I go into a tournament and there's 15 people and it's 15 former world champions, you know, main event world champions, I'm not anxious to get into that tournament, right? But if there's 8,000 people and a bunch of them are hometown heroes, yeah, my odds of winning that tournament are, are less because there's more people. But man, oh man, the number or percentage of participants who are positive EV, as in they're going to win in the long term if this tournament was played 10,000 times in a simulation, that goes way down. And the more dumb money, quote unquote, you have, the better chance to win, which is a good segue, right? Because you, I'm a big believer in that when you're contrarian, right? If you actually bet with the public, you actually want to be in pools where there's not a lot of public action because there's not going to be a premium on your approach. Like if you like to play a bunch of favorites, you know, playing favorites, let's say, in West Coast College basketball in February, you're going to be paying less of a premium than during March Madness or the Final Four. So in a weird way, if you're a contrarian and you want to dabble in the horses, the time to do it is the Triple Crown. Okay, you're a contrarian. Explain why that is in general and any other reasons you especially like to be for Triple Crown races. Well, the Triple Crown in particular, there are so many stories behind these horses that the TV, the TV coverage brings out and people become interested in those horses. And if you win the Derby, then you're automatically going to be the favorite for the Preakness, no matter what else happens. And so people know that horse. He won the Derby. It becomes it's like winning the Masters. It's it's almost as if you, you you may not watch golf at all, but you'll watch the Masters winner when he goes and plays in the next major event. And this is the same thing. So people fall in love with those type of horses. They fall in love with, with the horses that win the Derby. So when you go to the Preakness, if if you're going to be betting it, it's like, oh, I, I saw that horse win the Derby. I'm going to bet on him. And even established handicappers will look at it and say, okay, I don't think this horse can lose, and we'll stay with him. And then you've got... A lot of people who are just going for parties and drinking and fun and and, and at, at the Derby it's people with hats at the Preakness it's all the people in the infield having sex. You know, at the Belmont they're having it, sex. Oh, I never told you that story. The first time I covered the Preakness, I, I had a friend of mine. <laughs> I'm looking at the infield and I get there real early in the morning and he goes, "Man, I go, man, that's nuts." He goes, "Oh, it's like this every year." He goes here, take my binoculars. He goes, "I'll bet you five dollars that within ten seconds you'll see a couple having sex." Took eight. <laughs> It reminds me of the great, the great Chevy Chase movie, European Vacation. Remember, so the Audrey's making out with the boyfriend at the table, and Rudy, Rudy or Rusty, 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 Rusty said, "Dad, I think he's going for it right here." <laughs> I, I, I tell you, I, I like Vacation. Vegas, I like him. I like him all. I actually like the remake, which is kind of. I haven't sick. seen the remake yet. I guess I should watch it. It's it's not near as good, but it is pretty good. I can't lie. Yeah. But those oh. those are the people betting though. You get a lot of different and and plus uh, that this brings out some of the creme de la creme, and there's a lot of rich people that you know don't necessarily it's big money that isn't sharp. Right, they don't necessarily follow the races, so it gives you an opportunity to get into that money, and it, it it's almost to me. It's like sitting at a poker table where 
you've only got a hundred bucks and a hundred bucks in chips in front of you and everybody else has a thousand. Well, you'd be, you'll be at a disadvantage except if you know that all nine of those guys don't know the first thing about what they're doing at the table. So all you have to do is pick away a little bit and you're going to get all those chips. And that's kind of how I feel about this. And obviously all the sharp batters that are playing horses throughout the year are also playing most likely these races. It's just they're a smaller percentage of the pool. They are. And they also develop biases. And that's one thing that I've always tried to avoid yeah, because I and, and I have people on my show that are very sharp guys, but if they're from the East Coast, they're going to have biases toward co- horses that they've seen race on the East Coast. Same thing with the guys on the West Coast. So even really sharp players, and for the longest time, I, I was about that with horses that ran at the fairgrounds because those are the horses I, I saw run. And you have to get rid of that. you got to get it out of your head and say, wait a minute, let's look at all these horses. Let's look at them and, and get rid of our biases and when you do that, you'll find out that, oh, wait a minute, I, I, think, I, can, uh, I think I can actually make some money at this. Pregame.com, I'm R.J. Bell. We're talking to Fred Fowler, ESPN Houston, drive time ratings leader with his partner, A.J., in uh, horse racing, decades and decades of experience, and a winner, finally, after all those years. How, how many years ago... Did you start winning? As in, like, okay, consistently, yeah, about eight, eight, seven or eight years now. I mean, I, there's, and you're, there, you've been betting horses how long? Uh, so, well, for probably thirty, thirty years. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, mean, I had winning years in there. Yeah, but yeah, I also you had didn't feel like you were positive. Evie. But no, I wasn't. I, I I had more years that I lost than I won, and and it's to me it was the same way I learned to play poker. I lost for a long time before I started winning, and same thing with sports betting. It's it's always been a trial and error thing, and. And by the while losing a lot isn't fun, you know, you do learn from it. Every every time I go back, even now, if I miss the Derby this year, the first thing I'll do is go back and look at was my analysis flawed. Uh, was I right and just had bad luck? And, and that's what happens more often than not. It's just, okay, this horse got slammed out of the gate and damn near lost the It's hard to be honest about that, right? Yeah, there's it, a yeah. lot of sports batters. It's like, oh, if so and so didn't get a second foul. And, you know, and it's just, yeah, but the other team had those things too, you know? It, right. And, and I, and I love it when I'm, if I miss and I was still right, that's one thing. But there are times when I could be completely wrong and actually hit. And you have to be honest with yourself about that too. So, you know what? I got lucky. And I think that's great advice in all sports betting. You, if you're going to pay, you know, Billy Walters has a quote, if you're going to pay tuition, you might as well learn. And yeah. every time you lose, it's a type of tuition. Now, luckily, and that's really what I envisioned when dreaming about and building the pregame.com platform is the idea of a place where guys like Fred that have decades of, uh, let's call it, um, to what's the right word for it? Uh, tuition, I think. Fa- you know, in, in startups, they say founders' tuition. That you, it costs a lot of money to learn from all those mistakes. Well, you've already spent that money, Fred. Thank you. I'm going to say <laughs> for the listeners, we don't have to, and we can just leverage all the wisdom out the end. And listen, it's not easy to win at sports betting. Our goal here, always with everything we do, is to have you win more. You're going to have a certain point you're at right now. If we can improve that, we've done something for you. That may or may not mean that you're going to be profitable long-term, but you're winning more. And keeping realistic expectations is very important. All right, let's get into the specifics. Um, I do want to go back and talk about one thing you said because it's fascinating. March Madness is a good example, right? Team, 10th seed, 11th seed, 12th seed, wins first round, wins second round. Now there's 
you know, four days in between that next Thursday game. And, oh, Florida Gulf Coast, or, you know, obviously I think a 15, but is way back when, is there's the profiles, someone, you know, they fly someone down to do a remote down there, and all of a sudden the profile of that program goes up significantly. But let's just say a temple or someone, right? That profile on a scale of 1 to 100 might be a 30, and then if they make the Sweet 16, it goes up to a 70. So it goes up plus 40 units, let's say. But with these horses, their profile are almost zero with the general public. Then when they win the Derby, it goes up to like a 90. So that delta, that increase in profile based on winning happens in events like the Derby, or I'm sorry, like March Madness. But with the Derby, that winning horse, the jump in profile is like like nothing else. Absolutely. And you should be able to take advantage of that now. By not, by looking to fade. Right. And... The problem is a lot of times going into the Preakness, it's very strange how it works. Horses will go into the Derby. You really have no clue what their form's going to be, how they're going to run. And when they come out of the Derby, more often than not, they come back two weeks later, which the horses almost never do. That's just a very quick turnaround to run the Preakness. And they hold their form. So horses that you, you look for horses that ran well in the Derby that maybe didn't hit the board, just had you know traffic problems and things like that to come back and run better in the Preakness because they ran a good race two weeks before. They tend to run a, a good race two weeks again, uh, two weeks later. So when looking at the Preakness, I almost solely look at what they did in the Derby. And that's the only time I do that and, and not go back and look at every other race. And that's generally what you get with the Preakness is you'll get a horse that's in good form. And a lot of times they'll, they'll bring new horses in as they do all throughout the Triple Crown. Some of them are effective. Some of them aren't. Those you have to look at the what they were doing before. But that the, the Preakness, you should basically just look at the Derby. And then the Belmont is just my favorite one because horses that run well in the Derby and the Preakness, they're going to – maybe they didn't win the Preakness or maybe they ran second in the Derby and won the Preakness. They're almost always going to be overbet in the Belmont. And now they're running five – in five weeks, they're running three races. They're running a mile and a half. It's an almost always bet against. And that's where the last four years – that's where I've got my biggest trifectas have been in the Belmont because with the year California Chrome was going for the Triple Crown, I left him completely off the trifecta because I thought this is a tired horse and there were some really good new horses in there that had had time off and were better uh, positioned to run well. And so you kind of look at it when you go in to the Derby, it's almost like we don't know who Florida Gulf Coast is. For the Preakness, we know who they are. And by the time we get to the Belmont, we kind of know who the best, the North Carolinas and Dukes are going to be there. But that Florida Gulf Coast is still getting bet. I love, there's sometimes that the way the public gets biased is actually right. And then there's times that it, is opposite. And when it's opposite is best, right? So that's the case here. The public's bias is going to be based upon performance in the Kentucky Derby and then performance in the Preakness. And in a weird way, doing well in those races actually hurts you. Cause like you said, you're not going to really, it's pretty rare for a horse to race all three without doing well in the first two. Right. Right. Because it's like they give up and then you've got horses in the Belmont, what do they call them? Shooters that are waiting distance horses, just waiting rested. Right. Yes. So uh, to me, all the things like, Oh, this horse got first, then they got second. I'm batting him. But this horse is in a, in a handicapped 
you know, no pun intended situation later, right? So being contrarian is not only good in the Derby, it sounds like it gets better in the Preakness and the Belmont. It does, especially in the Belmont. And last year, Exaggerator was a good example because he wins the Preakness in the slop. And if you looked at his record, every race he won was on a sloppy track. He gets to the Belmont, gets over bet. There was some very good value there, and that's how we hit a $1,200 trifecta, was just by tossing him off the ticket. And, you know, that's why... It, you, you take each race as its own entity, but you use you, you really want somebody to run well in both of those races that you feel like you can bet against in the Belmont. And and the worst Belmonts are the ones where you have uh, none of the good horses go back from the, the Derby because you'll have a horse that maybe had a chance to win the Triple Crown. He wins the first one and then he runs second in the Preakness and then he's not in the Belmont. And those are the worst because basically you just you're starting from scratch again. But it's a that is the best race to bet against because it's very difficult for horses at Belmont. It's a mile and a half. Most of them will never come close to running that again. It's a long stretch, and it's it the a lot of these horses, man, they get to the top of the stretch and they've been running so well in these other races. And even as long as the Derby and the Preakness are, it, jockeys aren't used to it if they haven't ridden there before. They'll move too soon, and a horse just doesn't have enough left. And that's why, uh, to me, the Belmont is the best betting race of the three. One of my favorites about the Belmont, and it's an annual tradition. I tweet out, it's at RJ in Vegas, every year, Secretariat in the Belmont. I mean, man, what a... And am I correct? And I know there's technology and nutrition and all that, but today, Secretariat gets dropped down into this derby. He's the big favor, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, mean, I, I think even if you just dig him out of his grave right now and put him out there. <laughs> and there's... In the Belmont, when he's pulling ahead, and there's that famous call, right? He goes, he's moving like a... With tremendous a wonderful a tr- machine, a tremendous machine. He's yeah. moving like a tremendous machine. What a race! All right, let's talk a few things that apply to all three races, and then we'll get into sp- some specific race specific stuff, like you just did for the Belmont. Um, pace, pace, and we've talked about this before, is important in all three races. Explain well, obviously, uh, if, if you have a fast early pace or contested early pace. That tends to favor horses that come from behind because the the horses that are out front early get tired, and you know it makes it easier for those other horses to catch them. So the Derby, you see that you see closers, you see horses that are more stalkers. Now the last few years, stalker is one that's a pace horse. With, right? Well, within two to three lengths of the lead, but not necessarily on it. And then they try to take the lead at the yeah, end. Yeah. And some and going back to dog racing, which I have some painful experiences with as a handicapper, as a teenager, is there used to be, uh, or there are, I guess, still dogs that just want second. Like they, if they're in fifth, they'll get in, on the stretch, they'll get up to second. But if they're second, they'll never get the first. Yep. Is, is, are there horses like that? There are horses like that. And that's going to get to one of our betting strategies here in a minute that that I want to dive into. But uh, the, the Preakness, it has this reputation for these tight turns. It's not really accurate. It's a, a very... I mean, it's a it's a very big sur- uh, surface, and uh, it, it tends to favor horses that it's a fair track. I mean, if you're a front runner and you're good, you can win there. If you're a closer and you're good, you can win there. And the Belmont is it, the pace of the Belmont is usually much slower than the other races because it is a longer race and they have to be smart early. And because of that, people would tend to think that it favors closers. But the reality is, you want to be near the lead. In the Belmont. In fact, the the last, I, I can't remember, I think it's the last four of the Triple Crown winners all went wire to wire in the Belmont, including American Pharaoh. And the reason for that is you get out there and you basically, 
you get a free half mile because you're running slower than you're used to running. So you get more relaxed and you have more strength left when you get to the end of the race. So while the Belmont on the surface, you would say, oh, well, it's the longest race. I should go get the closer. More often than not, it's horses on the lead or near the lead that win the Belmont. We talked about contrarian, and let's talk Derby for a minute because on another pod we discussed this, but let's make sure that we get it out there pretty quick, is last 13 years in the Derby, the favorite has won seven times, Um, you know, a little more than half. From 1980 to 1999, so 20 years, the favorite won the Kentucky Derby zero times, zero for 20. So it's your thinking and again, we're recording this in 2017, but this is you know, these concepts are going to apply for years to come. Um, in general, Fred, and not to overtalk this, is you believe that it's, it's the more favorites recently isn't a paradigm shift or fundamental change, but rather they're just some really good horses. I, I think that was that was part of it. I, I don't think that this means that the Derby is suddenly going to become this place where favorites win. Uh, every, every year, I think we've this is a little bit of an outlier, and I think we'll start coming out of that again. Uh, if not, if not in 2017, then certainly 2018, 2019. It's just there's not. It's almost impossible to continue at this rate when the horses are actually pretty close together in, in terms of ability, and that's that's what I think we, we're seeing. So the, we've just had some amazing horses in, in California Chrome who. Won the first two legs. We had American Pharaoh who won all three. Nyquist coming in last year was one of the most uh, accomplished horses. He was unbeaten. So uh, there have been a lot of horses that were deserving favorites. I think that trend is is not going to continue. We're, we're also not going to go 19 years without a favorite again. But over time... In general, less favorites than you would think. Yes, and, and, and realistically, we should be getting no more than 20% favorites winning the Derby over a 25-year span. And even that's a high number. All right, so there's prep races. For the Derby, everyone's got a prep. For the Preakness, it's going to be more about if you don't run in the Derby, what's your preps? How do you handicap those prep races? Or how do you factor those into your Triple Crown handicap? Well, they're they're very important because they use a point system to get into the Derby. So you have to perform well in them. But what I have found is that there's different trainers have different approaches to the prep races. And some trainers go all out to win the prep races. They want their horses to be, you know, get as many points as possible. They want to win as many grade one prep races as they can. And when they get to the Derby, they'll feel like they've got a good horse. And other trainers make sure they have enough points. But then they're more interested in, hey, let's just get one more race in him. If he doesn't win, no big deal. I just want him fit. And Todd Pletcher is an example of the former. And he's one for 45 in the Kentucky Derby. He's had 45 starters, one winner. His only winner was a horse called Super Saver. He finished second in the Arkansas Derby. And he was the only one of, he didn't win his prep race because his jockey at the time was Calvin Burrell, who was riding out of his mind. And he knew that he could have won the Arkansas Derby if he pushed the horse really hard at the end. But he was looking ahead to the Kentucky Derby, which was three weeks later. So the analogy here is, college basketball conference tournaments. Yes. Some coaches for whatever reason might be, they need it to keep, you know, for job security, whatever is they're going to, they don't care if they have to play four straight games. They don't play care if they have to play their starters longer. They're going to get those wins. Other guys like coach care, whatever, are like, Hey, we don't mind maybe losing on Friday because we know how good we are. We're in the tournament. We get some rest. Exactly. And you have to have enough points and be in, but that, 
that that was Pletcher's one derby because the jockey kind of made that decision. And he came back with a fresh horse in the derby and he won the race. And in general, a lot of these preps, horses get pushed uh, very, very hard to get their points. And you will find out that most of them, when they get to the derby, they've either already been over the top and that they've reached their peak and are now starting to go down, or they're totally unprepared for the derby because of the running styles they employed in the preps, or you know, that maybe they sent a horse straight to the lead in the prep so he could win it. Well, that's not going to work in the derby. And so all of those prep races, it's, it's one thing to win a bunch of them. It's another thing to use those races to prepare you for the derby because that's what they're supposed to be. And not everybody does that. And when you start, start sorting through trainers and, and look at their histories, Bob Baffert does as good a job as anybody of preparing his horses for the Triple Crown. And he wins a lot of them, but he doesn't win them all. And guys like Todd Pletcher try to win them all, and it usually hurts them when they get to the Triple Crown. Now, some of those horses bounce back in the Belmont after they skip the Preakness, and those are horses to come back and bet because they're good horses, and now they've had the experience of the Derby. But in general, prep races shouldn't be thought of as, oh, this horse won, suddenly he's the favorite. Prep races should be looked at in a very broad sense. Who is getting the most out of these races? Who is developing the most? And who will run their best race? And I think another way to say it is, know what, and this is where this expertise comes in, know what the intentions of the horse were and go from there, right? If they were trying to win really hard and they won, great, but is there a consequence? If they weren't trying to win, all the better because, like you said, they're going to be more fit and um, and and maybe underrated because people are just looking at the prep results. So you're, I think the takeaway here is look at the prep results with the intention of the trainer in mind. Right, and I, and I would always go back and look at – Look at the videos of those races, too, because you'll tell if you see a, a horse that's being pushed along really hard at the end of a race to get up and win, then that takes something out of them. And maybe they won't be as sharp next time. And if they're just galloping up and, and not really trying and still run second, that's that's a good result. OK, I'm going to rapid fire, not rapid, but go through a punch list of handicapping 101 type concepts. Tell me, maybe you might say it doesn't matter at all or here, here's one thing that matters and we'll keep moving trainer in general so we talked about the mentality with the prep races anything else that's trainer specific well certain trainers horses have certain running styles most of steve asmussen's horses tend to come from off the pace uh so that's one of the reasons i liked looking at lee so much going into the derby was because he you know off the pace horse trained by steve asmussen a lot of his horses tend to clunk up for a piece and again Uh, this is a general concept the 2017 derby that horse but general concept is trainers Certain trainers, certain running style. Correct. Anything else trainer-wise? Uh, just guys who have won derbies before tend to know how to prepare horses better. And guys who haven't won them tend to keep doing the same things wrong. So yeah, if, if you see a guy who's 0 for 20 or, or 1 for 45, <laughs> you know that they're not really preparing their horses for the race the right way. Next topic, jockeys. Hear a lot about it. How much do you think about jockeys? Uh, jockeys are, are important. The The problem that we're at now is we don't have this great depth of terrific jockeys that we had 10, 15 years ago. And hell, Gary Stevens is older than me, and he's still out there riding, and I'd still want him on a horse before a lot of guys. But uh, there, there's a, a smaller group of great jockeys, and y- you hope that you get one of them on your horse. But sometimes the best angle is to take a horse that has had – a really bad jockey on him at a smaller track and gets one of these premier jockeys because 
they can make a difference. And so for those that don't know, and I don't have deep knowledge on this is what percentage of the horses have a jockey that they've ever ridden that horse before? Let's say in the Kentucky Derby. Yeah, most of them will have ridden the horses before, but but, uh, but not uh, a majority not, of the time, the runs of the horse. Uh, I wouldn't have run all of their races because like the really good jockeys like Mike Smith is going to have three or four horses that he's trying to choose for his derby mount. So some of these other guys will ride. Okay, so that's interesting. So in general, if I'm saying how much advantage is it if the jockey is familiar with the horse? Uh, it's an advantage, as long as it's a good jockey. If it's a bad jockey that's familiar with the horse, it doesn't really make a difference. And while bad jockeys will lose, will lose you a race, a good jockey can lose you a race too. A bad jockey's not going to improve a horse. He's not going to put the horse in a better position to win. To me, this is a lot like football coaching. You're just trying to put your players in the best position to to make plays. That's what that's what a jockey's trying to do. Put the horse in the best position for him to run his race. And it, it's just like anything else. Bill Belichick's the best at it in football. And then you have the Bill O'Briens of the world. So there, there's a big difference in skill levels with some of these guys. But it's not what it used to be. That There, there used to be 10 or 12 Bill Belichicks out there. And now there's probably one or two. Houston ESPN, Fred <laughs> Fowler with his contextualized comments. Okay, so what I'm hearing is this. Good jockey familiar is best, but a time that a horse might be underrated is if you have an unfamiliar jockey that's good that is relatively much better than the jockey the horse has had. Absolutely, and the best example of that I would use would be... Uh, and again, we don't want to get spe- too specific into anything this year. Right, This, but uh, when Mind That Bird won the Kentucky Derby okay. at 50-1, to one, he got Calvin Burrell, who at the time was riding out of his mind, and uh, he was replacing a guy in, in Sunland, New Mexico, who was a cowboy, basically. He was not a very good rider. So just putting Calvin Burrell on that horse helped you get a 50-1 to one winner in the Derby. It was that simple. So that can happen, yes. That That is fascinating. Okay, sires or you know the parents however you say it uh you hear that a lot roddy dangerfield (laughs) his mother was a mother his father was a mother how much do you consider Uh, i look at that a lot but most of the horses that get to this point are very well bred and i I have sires that i think are, are better than others but it's so hard to tell because you can get a horse that's a full brother or a full sister like uh american pharaoh's full sister uh, is running, but she's not as good. And the way I look at it is like, hey, my brother was a fantastic baseball player. I came from the same sire and dam, and I wasn't nearly as good. It, it happens. But in general, the best horses come from the the better sires and the better mares. And most of the horses that get to this point, it, it's all kind of a crapshoot in terms of who's the best. There are some horses that run that are better at distance and some that are better at sprinting. But in general, I, I look at it, but it's not a huge factor unless it's a horse that's trying to that I'm not familiar at all with the breeding and they've overrun, they've outrun their breeding. Then I tend to bet against them a little bit when they get against more classic breeding. So the different siblings, the great reference, Alex P. Keaton and Mallory on Family Ties, very different, <laughs> yes. very different. All right. <laughs> uh, there has to be a Frank Stallone too, right? <laughs> Someone's got to yeah. be. Clapping for the parade, Fred. Don't forget that. But you said something at the very end that I found fascinating. Okay, if you do get to this level, you're probably well-bred. But for the rare cases, they're not. Because there's two ways you would look at that. Would be one is, wow, this is such an aberration. Go with it. Or two, hey, 
th- that limitation is going to show itself in this kind of class field. It sounds like you're more towards the latter, as in right. if if a horse got luck, quote unquote lucky enough to get there and not well bred, you eliminate him. Uh, I, I tend or at to, least yeah. it's a negative. Yeah, it's a negative. It's a strike against. That's for sure. All right, Triple Crown, unlike any other races, few reasons for that. Let's take it off just one or two sentences. So crowd size. These horses haven't raced in front of so many people. What kind of factor is that? Well, it it, it just depends on the horse. Some of them are, are, and you never know how it's going to affect them. But if they've acted up in the past against smaller crowds, then you need to pay attention to that when they get in there. Cause, so oh, looking like they're freaked out or disturbed or whatever. Right, very sweaty. If you see them very, very sweaty, especially if it's How cool. can you tell that? Can you tell that? with the? Oh, f- yeah. When they bring them on the track, you'll be able to tell. You'll see sweat all over them. And uh, that that's a sign of nervousness and that they're hyper excited. Now, I knew a guy that had a, a a dog trend, which was he would watch the dogs when they were, you know, showing them and said if the dog pooped, he would bat him, figuring he's, you know, freed up and released. Anything like <laughs> anything like that? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds crazy, but actually, yeah. if I was running a race, it kind of makes well, sense. Well, yeah, yeah. If you think of it from a human perspective, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> All right, length of the race. And we were talking about this, and, and it surprised me because I didn't know this. The Kentucky Derby, because I always think Belmont's the long race, right? The Derby is longer than any race these horses have ever raced. At this stage of their career. Yes. Yeah, they will. no, no one has run a mile and a quarter. So it'll be the first time they go that far. And the Belmont is the longest race. But so how much? How do you consider? How do you look at past results that are all shorter and extrapolate? You look at horses that are still running at the end of the race, or still fighting at the end of the race, even if they got passed, because that that's a horse that's probably going to keep going for another eighth of a mile. And you know, a lot of times that's where you know, the daily racing form is great. But that's why I always look at the preps uh, on. I go back and I watch them live, but I also go back and watch them on tape several times to see who's still running at the end. And who will want to keep running if they have another eighth of a mile to go? Fred Fowler, great stuff. We're wrapping up here. Got a few minutes left. ESPN Houston, pregame.com, forums, podcasts. This guy's a professional radio host. We're lucky to have him. Number of horses. So Kentucky Derby especially, upwards of what, 20? 20 is the the max, yes. What's the macro considerations with this big increase in number? Well, that 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 of course just creates another element of of the unknown when it comes to the Derby. Now, and horses have to get enough points to get in, and there's a list, so the top twenty points get in. When you get to the Preakness, the max is fourteen, and same for the Belmont. But you never have that many horses, so it, that is one way the Derby is going to be completely different than those two races. And the the Preakness is usually more like the preps were because it'll be. You know, 8, 10, 11 horses. Sometimes you'll have more. It just depends on how dominant the Derby winner was. And by the time you get to the Belmont, a lot of people don't want to run their horse a mile and a half for the only time in their life if there's nothing to win except that one race. So uh, you get a more specialized group. And that's that's. And you the get these shooters in the Belmont, Yeah, you right? get those new shooters. And, and explain that real quick. Well, that's people who maybe the horse ran in the Derby and didn't run very well, so they sit out the Preakness and they come back fresh for the Belmont. Or maybe they weren't quite good enough to make it to the Derby, so they ran in another race and ran really well. It's like, okay, we'll take another month off and, and be waiting for you at the Belmont. That's the one and that these they, are often horses that they think are especially suited to the longer right, distance. Right. And that's what the owner of California Chrome got so mad about when he lost. And it's and that's just racing. And if you've got a horse that's good enough to win, 
that race, you're smart to wait for that one. So you see a lot of that. And the last few years, we, we've seen a bunch of those horses win, often at good prices. Okay. Well, yeah, because as we talked about, the, the, this whole increase in profile, they weren't a part of, right? right? So, and again, that's why you think the Belmont has so much opportunity. Okay. Last is surface. So each of these tracks have their own surface. And the question is, how does that compare to the surfaces these horses had raced on before? Yeah, and, and Churchill obviously is, is is very different. It's a long stretch, uh, but it's it's very similar to tracks like the fairgrounds in Oakland Park. The Preakness is run at Pimlico, which I, I think horses that have run in California, it's it seems to be a closer uh, surface to that. And the Belmont, it, it that's unique, and they call it Big Sandy. It's this long stretch. It's a big, grueling racetrack with big, wide-sweeping turns, and it's very different. And so that's why it is such a, a difficult task for a horse to go in and actually run well, not just win, but run well in all three of those races because it is very, they're different configurations. So general concept-wise, if I said look at the surface in each of the races, compare it to the surfaces – that the horse is used to running on and try to match that. Meaning if it's a similar surface, those results are more pertinent. And if it's this major change, it's just got to be a big uncertainty. And, you know, you don't want to necessarily bet horses that you feel uncertain about. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Last topic. And this is stuff I think sometimes it's better written. And I, I also think that or oh, I know that you've got audiobooks that really sell well, well, a lot of popularity uh, audiobooks that we're going to be doing some stuff with at pregame.com. So check that out on Fred's homepage. Um, if it's not up now, it'll be up soon based on when you're listening to this. So let's not dig too deep, but let's spend three or four minutes on you actually approach all races, but the Derby and the Triple Crown, Preakness and Belmont especially with a different approach to the tries and the perfectas than most. So let's keep it high level, but give us the overview. Well, the, the overview is, is uh, what my strategy strategies attempt to do are, I, it's called a pyramid is, is the way I look at it. And I know that so has this a negative, is not a pyramid, not scheme. a pyramid scheme. No, but where <laughs> send you send you a bunch of money. Yeah. It, well, no, no, but, uh, but where you start uh, with like one or two horses on top and then you run uh, three or four more horses into second and then more into third. So it's like a pyramid structure. And that's one way I approach it. The other thing I like to do is use key horses in my trifectas where I'll put a horse in first and second, sometimes first, second, and third with three, four, five other horses, and then everybody in third if I think it's a wide open race. And those are where my big, big scores come from. But one thing I want to throw out there that you should think about in the Triple Crown races is a lot of times you'll have horses that aren't quite good enough to win but are very capable of running second or third at a big price. And this is a strategy that I've employed a lot, and it works great. And there is there is a reason for doing it. And just simple math. Let's say a horse has made 20 starts. He's got two wins. He's got eight seconds. And he's got six thirds. So 14 out of those 20 times, he's been second or third. So just from an odds perspective, he's probably going to run second or third again. So keying him in second and third and putting potential winners on top is it's a, a different kind of strategy. And especially because listen, it's random too, right? Like if, if my, you remember for those that are older, that coach K made the final four bunch and had ne never won it. Right. And there was a sense, Oh, coach K can get him there. But then later he became a great final four coach. 
I don't think there was anything about what Coach K was doing. I think it was random, right? So sometimes if a horse is going to be in the money twice, the odds of him, that horse being second and third, is just the same as first and second or, you know, first and third. But sometimes watching a horse, you can see that they're a pace setter. Or So I think how do you – I'm guessing because you're never going to have a sample size big enough to be statistically confident that this horse is a, a second-place type horse, but rather it seems like his running style is going to dictate. Yeah, and usually they're, they're closers, and, it, and some of them kind of goes back to the dog you were, t- you were talking about, that he's – Always good enough to get to a certain point, but not good enough to get all the way there. Or doesn't even want to get in front right. of some of these. And, and, that's, and you'll find these throughout the Triple Crown. Now you'll find them more if you're just doing random races during the week. But if you get into the Triple Crown and you notice a horse that's done that a couple of times, that's, that's where you're going to get really nice prices. And most of them have only run about 10 races, so it's hard to, to put, a, put a percentage on it and say, okay, this is obviously a good enough sample size. But... More often than not, those horses will continue to do that. So last thing, let me try to explain this in a, as a base, basic algorithm, but the kind you could do in an Excel sheet, not a PhD kind, is in general, what's the horse's odds of getting first, second, or third? Each one's going to have, and then you're going to look at it versus what the pool looks like and decide if there's an overlay, as in this is a positive EV horse, and then understand, stack your horses based on the positive EV ones, and most of the time, there's not going to be enough that you're going to have too many, and thus you might have two horses you think are positive EV to win, four horses or three that are positive EV to get second, and four that are positive EV to get third, that's your pyramid, and you've got all you know those horses in there. Um, and they're all positive EV, and thus it's going to be a good bet. Absolutely. Is, it, that, is it, that a fair way to represent it? That's a fair it? way to represent it. And when you start adding more horses, then that that comes into, do you think they're vulnerable favorites here? And I'm going to get more of a return. I, I can go ahead and spread more horses in here and spend a little more money because I think my return is going to be higher. And it lends itself to that in the Triple Crown because there's so many betters. Some of these, uh, there's a better chance to have a big payout because the pools are so big. Right. Great stuff. And again, we just we could do and again that's why Fred did an audio book. Check him out on Twitter, Fred Fowler, F A O U R, all one word. Also pregame.com forms, whole thing, great stuff. You can follow me on Twitter at RJ in Vegas. This has been a special Triple Crown podcast. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to R.J. Bell's Dream Preview. Catch the Wise Guy Roundtable each week. College football released on Wednesday. NFL on Thursday. Don't miss any winners. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Visit podcastone.com and download the Podcast One app. Have a question for R.J.? You can contact him directly on Twitter at R.J. in Vegas. Live the dream with us each week.